word of God from Psalm 15. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. This is God's word given for our good. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. I'm gonna ask you to remain standing as we pray for this time that we spend listening to God speak to us through his word. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this opportunity to be in your house, um, such as it is, such as we are tabernacling, tabernacling in, a, uh, in a cafetorium. Lord, we pray that you would be with us, that you would speak clearly to our hearts, that through your Holy Spirit, you would prepare each heart to receive what you have for us this morning. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, O oh God, our rock and our redeemer. Through Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Please be seated. This morning, it's great to be here. It's great to look around and see familiar faces. And Nancy, I'm going to make you stand up and wave to everybody. And Phil, if you could as well. We are glad to see everybody, but when, when people who are like family with us um, come back for a visit, we want to make sure to recognize them. We're really glad that you're here this morning. It's good to see y'all. Um, and this morning, I just want to talk about those, um, those aspirations that we have. An aspiration, it's, it's connected to the word hope, but it's when we get specific with it, Right? And sometimes there's really not a good way to express how strongly we feel about a given aspiration. Sometimes we just are, you know, we have it on our vision board or we have it listed as one of our goals. But if you have been victimized by musical theater the way I have, um, you know that sometimes there are songs that talk about those specific aspirations. But it's not limited to musical theater, you know. With the recently passed Tony Bennett, we had his song, Rags to Riches. You know, I know I'd go from rags to riches if you would only say you care. And though my pockets may be empty, I'd be a millionaire. I would try to sing it, but respect, okay? Even when you're at the game, you hear the, the anthem from the rock group Queen, We Are the Champions, before the game's decided, Right? It's an aspiration. It's not yet happened, but we're singing about it. And sometimes this defies even the wisdom of the great Yogi Berra, that it ain't over till it's over. Or even we may think of self-improvement. We're singing along with Michael Jackson saying, I'm starting with the man in the mirror. Ronnie, you might recognize that as a Counting Crows song. Um, <clears throat> But whatever it is, there are, there are sometimes things that we aspire to that we can only sing about, right? And in musicals, there's even a category for this. 
It's called the I Want Song. So you might re- recall some of these, like um, from The Little Mermaid, when she's singing, uh, where would we walk, where would we run, if I could stay all day in the sun, just you and me, and I could be part of your world. Or Alexander Hamilton declaring that I'm not throwing away my shot. Or even Simba in The Lion King singing just joyously, triumphantly in this parade that like, how on earth did that get organized? I just can't wait to be king. So sometimes you get an idea of these aspirations. Sometimes the only way to really get at it is to sing about it. We sing what we want to be true in spite of it not yet being true. And we sing about this because we long for it to be true. We really deeply want it to be true. Songs sometimes give us a way to express the longing of our heart in the reality of our experiences because we need a way to express that tension that we experience, the already and the not yet of our lives because we live currently in the building tension of the last act of God's redemption of the whole creation. We are in that already not yet tension. Jesus has won. We are already free from the tyranny of sin, and yet we are not free, not yet, from the influence of sin and all the complications that it means for our lives. So we sing of how we want to be, knowing that we're not there yet. I mean, we've already done that so far in this service. We sing about the goodness of God and how it's running after us and how we long with every breath that we are able to sing of the goodness of God. And I have to admit, some of the things that I did this week I was not using my breath to sing the goodness of God. No, some of my every breaths were shouting my disappointment with my own failure to get the one item from Costco that I went there for. And yet I had a full cart and three digits of charges to my credit card afterward. So it's this experience we have of singing what we long to be. And that is where we get to Psalm 15 this morning. And Psalm 15 is going to give us a picture of that aspiration, a picture of those specifics that we want to see show up in our lives but aren't there yet. And what we're going to see is that there's really kind of two things happening in this psalm. One of them is we get a clear picture of the ideal worshiper And this ideal worshiper is going to be something profound, and we're going to look at it, and we're going to say, in some ways, yes, I want that to be me. And also, ugh, I feel very far from that. But we're also going to see the ethics of the righteous. The ethics of the righteous are really where we take our ideals and we put them into action. That really is, in some ways, the definition of ethics, right? It's living and acting according to an ideal. So as we look at this psalm together, I hope that you'll see these two themes. So let's dive right in with this ideal worshiper. 
In Psalm 15, it starts off and it alerts us immediately. This is one of those that was written by David, King David. And he starts right off, O Lord. Really, he's addressing Yahweh directly. Yahweh, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? It's a question. And it's a question that really is in some ways serving the same function as our catechisms. We just celebrated and contemplating our faith with a catechism question from the New City Catechism. And catechism is one of those things. It's just a fancy word for questions and answers. And what did we say? With what attitude should we pray? With love, perseverance, and gratefulness, in humble submission to God's will, knowing that for the sake of Christ, He always hears our prayers. In a similar way, this psalm is kind of doing a catechism on us. It's asking this question. And what it does is it reminds us of some of the truth of what God has revealed about himself and likewise what it reveals about us. So when we ask that question, you know, who shall sojourn in your tent who shall dwell on your holy hill? Let's recall that King David at the time has settled in as king, and he's writing this psalm from the perspective of the regular worship that happened on Mount Zion, that holy hill. So it's the place of worship. And when it's asking, Lord, who shall dwell in your tent? Let's remember, that tent was the tent of it was the tabernacle, right? It was that temporary structure for experiencing the presence of God. And David, even later in his time as king, he asked God, Lord, when can I make you a temple? I'm living in a palace. You should have an even greater palace. And the Lord answered him and said, that's not for you to do. That'll be the work of someone later on. So what we get is this picture of who can come into the presence of God, but more than that, sojourn in your tent. Who can stay there for a while? Just as we've stayed in this cafetorium for a while this summer, who can be there and remain in the presence of Yahweh, in the presence of the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God who rescues all sorts of people out of humanity, calls them to himself? and reveals to them that he is holy, that he is not merely holy. He's threefold holy. He's so holy, we don't even have a way to conceive of it perfectly. So it's setting up this description by asking this question. It's asking, who's the kind of person who feels at home in the presence of the covenant-making God? And in setting up this description with this question, we're going to see that it's going to give us not only a picture of who that is, but how they behave with the world around them. And in some ways, it's going to remind us of other themes that happen in the Psalms. Even in Psalm 1, the first two verses say this, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. It's this picture that we're going to be looking at, 
And this question that opens this psalm is going to frame the whole thing for us. It's setting us up. So let's look at this answer. Beginning in verse 2. In verse 2, we see, He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. Now, there are some people who study the Scriptures and they write these big tomes called commentaries. Some of those commentaries would tell you that this was actually kind of like a gatekeeping question for the worshipers of God, but I don't really feel like that follows. I follow the other commentary, commentating that happens that says, this is setting forward an ideal. It's not setting a standard that can be measured. And that really is evident when you think about verse 2, because think about that second part, and speaks truth in his heart. It means it's not just evident in the outward behaviors, but there's some sort of insight into the inner person, into the psyche, into the soul, that what's true outside is also true inside. And we can't measure that on our own terms. Not the best priest around. Not even Ronnie can do that. What we need is we need to see this as an ideal that's being set forward. And when we read those who walk blamelessly, that's when I'm like, oh, <laughs> walking blamelessly, no problem. I know that I don't walk blamelessly. And also the scriptures are very realistic about this. Humankind have a hard time walking blamelessly. In Psalm 14, verse 3, the psalm right before this, you have a verse like this. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. You have Ecclesiastes 7, verse 20, telling us, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. So, obviously, this is setting up an ideal for us. It's a goal for us to strive toward. It's not a reality that would prevent us from knowing God. He knows who we are. He remembers that we are dust. And in terms of speaking the truth in his heart, that internal consistency, that's really tough. Because even if I keep it together on the outside. What's going on inside is sometimes a very different picture. I'm going to try my best to walk with integrity every day, but I still can be a desperately selfish person whose chief love in life is myself. And that is a reality that we have to reckon with. It's part of that not yet dynamic that the Lord is working on me, on us, but we have to own the fact that even our deepest inclinations can go astray. Jeremiah the prophet said it very well when he said, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? 
And obviously what this calls out is our need, right? Our need to be changed thoroughly from the inside out. And that's where Jesus meets our need, from the inside out. So this is setting up an ideal, a picture of the kind of righteousness that's, that's appropriate, that's befitting someone who can remain in the presence of God because God is holy. And this kind of representation of the ideal worshiper is common throughout the Old Testament. Sometimes you'll see, see it referred to as the sadikim, Basically, a person who is righteous is sadiq, right? It's from the Hebrew, sadiq, meaning righteous. And these sadikim, the righteous, it's not that they've earned the righteousness in all the senses that it's used in the Old Testament. It's not this idea of earned righteousness that comes from religious rigor and moral perfection. It's the worshipful response to the grace and the revealed goodness of Yahweh. So as we hear it today, and as it was heard when David wrote it, this psalm should hit us as an encouragement to voice our longing to become like this ideal worshiper. And Jesus himself used ideals in teaching about the kingdom of God. In the Sermon on the Mount, he said something like this, you, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And Jesus said this as he was in the context of raising the bar for everyone's understanding of how we should live. It wasn't just seeing the law like the Ten Commandments, the Torah. It wasn't looking that as like the ceiling of what we should attain to. You know, it's like, well, I haven't murdered anybody, so I'm good. No, it's not the ceiling, it's the floor. It's the floor of how we should operate as human beings made in God's image. And Jesus was raising this up to say, the ceiling's out of sight. And as he did that, he unpacked and redefined what living as holy people, as righteous people should look like. So it's really a starting point of living our lives to reveal the holiness of our God in our outward actions and in our inward inclinations. Now, I do want to talk for just a moment about ideals in general because ideals can be tricky. I was talking with a, a friend of mine, somebody I deeply respect, and I said, yeah, but that's kind of idealistic, and he stopped me. Not just like, hold on a second. He actually reached out, put his hand on mine to get my attention. And I totally had that feeling of like, you know when you're a kid and you get caught, you know, doing something you shouldn't be doing, and you get that kind of stomach drop feeling of, oh, now I've done it. That's what I had. I had that, oof, now I've done it feeling. And he looked at me and he said, Jason, ideals are a good thing. And I just had to sit with it because I had always thought of being idealistic as being unrealistic. I had always thought of idealistic as, oh, I'm just thinking pie in the sky and I need to get back to reality. But Steve was 
good at stopping me and saying, no, ideals are a beautiful thing. Our response to them is what gets us in trouble. Because sometimes we have an, in, an inclination to respond to an ideal by tightening up and becoming perfectionistic. We want that ideal to be true that we feel like it's calling out to us to control all of the variables. And sometimes that leaches out into the people around us. You know, not only should I not do that, you shouldn't do that either. Not only should I try to do that, you should try to do that. And what does that begin to sound like to you? It starts to sound like legalism, doesn't it? It starts to sound like that kind of religiosity that really kind of doesn't sit well with us. It's like, okay, we're saying the right things, but it really feels less like a celebration parade and more like a dirge on the way to a funeral. So that's one way we can get ideals wrong. The other way, which I have to admit, this is probably where I default to. I can be plenty perfectionistic, especially under stress, but my, my mistake of choice is sometimes we respond to ideals by becoming cynical. And when we become cynical, we start to convince ourselves that we can see through even the virtuous things that are being given to us, encouraged for us. We can look at those ideals and we can think, yeah, but that's never really going to work. So why bother? And cynicism is sort of the, it was sort of the flavor of choice for my generation, right? What is it? Kenan Thompson on Saturday Night Live said, yeah, I'm Generation X. I'm just going to sit on the sidelines and watch the world burn. <laughs> that tends to be the approach. But really, ideals are good. They're good for us because they set a standard in front of us for us to strive toward. That negative direction of per perfectionism, of thinking that all of it always matters, isn't it. And that negative direction of cynicism saying that none of it actually matters, that's also not it. The ideal is there to help us understand who we should be like, that we should want deeply in the center of our being to be that person who walks blamelessly and who tells the truth in their heart. I want to be that. Do you want to be that? So that is this ideal worshiper that this psalm is setting forward and asking us, are you that? Do you want to be that? And then it unpacks it for us because we take these ideals and then we put them into action. And that really is the ethics of what we're doing. And so now we're going to look at the ethics of the righteous according to this psalm. First, we're going to see the righteous talk about others. Then we're going to see the righteous promoting holiness in others. And then we'll see how the righteous seek justice for others. So in verse 3, in verse 3 we read this, Who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend? This is really connecting us to some realities that have already been revealed 
In fact, this would have reminded the early people who interacted with this psalm of the command in the Ten Commandments against false witness. Because bearing false witness is really what we would understand even today as slander. We're saying something about somebody else that's not true. And that slander has no place in the way we talk of others. Even if we feel strongly, even if we feel strongly that they are so wrong, so off base, that does not give us an excuse to slander. There's a standard of humble trust that the Lord will make things right with that person with whom we disagree or with whom we've witnessed wrongs. We don't have to make up more stuff about them to make that true, and we don't have to be the one to go and settle the score. We are not a crowd of Liam Neesons going out and making sure that nobody gets taken. We humbly trust that the Lord meant it when he said, vengeance is mine. And so what this comes down to is even the way we talk about others, we need to be careful and cautious and give grace even in the way we talk about them and make sure that the highest standard for behavior and ethics is ours to own for ourselves. That's why Jesus, as he's unpacking it in the Sermon on the Mount, says, let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. You know, he was correcting that practice of making wild oaths and like basically making the collateral of your word, your promise, the temple or God himself. And Jesus was like, don't get into all of that. Just make it yes or no. And this taking up a reproach against a friend... This psalm is encouraging us that we should not let a misunderstanding with those we are close with escalate into a feud, into a grudge. And where this, where this is coming to is just we need to make sure if we are aspiring to be the righteous that we understand that this righteous person, this sadikim, they are going to be speaking in a way that's always on the level, is always fair, and doesn't give in to the temptations of our tongue. And if we need more on the tongue, you spend a little time in the third chapter of James, you'll understand. James himself says, for every kind of beast and bird, reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. As we seek to be an ideal worshiper of our God, our speech about others is going to reflect his holiness and our understanding that we are also accountable to his judgment. We don't suddenly become the judge in his place. 
We also see that the righteous promote holiness in others. Verse 4 says this, In whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change. In whose eyes a vile person is despised. Wait a minute. Despised. I mean, that's pretty intense, right? Well, let's understand what they mean, what David meant by a vile person. What he meant by a vile person was not your garden variety sinner, someone who's making mistakes, acting selfishly. What he's focusing in here on is a vile person being someone in the community of the covenant who is rejecting the life of the covenant. So this would be the believer who's living like hell. The person who is claiming faith in God, claiming a relationship with Jesus, but living as if Jesus had no part in their life, no claim on their actions, no influence on their attitude. Really, he's calling out the person who is betraying their confession. And when that kind of unrepentant person is a part of it, then what this psalm is saying is you need to put distance between yourself and that person. That person is despised because they're bringing shame to even the reputation of God. This would echo for those hearers and for us of that third commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. If we claim to be the people of God but live in ways opposite to his holiness, that can't stand. So it's not a demand for perfectionism among God's people. It's decrying hypocrisy and the public scandal that would raise doubt about the goodness of Yahweh. Those are people we should put distance between ourselves and them. But who honors those who fear the Lord? Do we congratulate? Do we congratulate the minor, tiny victories of those who are walking with us? The folks who confess openly in our community group, I'm finding it hard to pray, and then you check in with them later the next week, and it's like, no, you know what? I can't say it's all better, but like, I have prayed a few times this week, and it's getting easier. Do we congratulate them? Do we cheer them on? Do we do that thing that like etiquette demands when you run the 5K or the half marathon where you get done running, and then you kind of circle back around and cheer those who are coming in after you? Like, that's the picture of that ideal worshiper in very practical terms. Are we, are we being that kind of person who honors those who fear the Lord, who's, who are doing the work, taking the steps? And then this last little part, 
who swears to his own hurt and does not change. We take vows, right? We make promises. When you become a member at Denver Prez, we have everybody come up on stage and make their vows before the congregation. Part of the reason we do that is you're promising to be part of this people as we do this work together. And sometimes we make that commitment because we just think, yeah, this is a pretty okay place. These are, these are cool people. And sometimes it really hurts when we have to be on sort of the business end of that promise, when it means that we have to be part of that intervention for that brother or sister who has become lost in their addiction, that it means we may have to show up when others don't. I made a promise years ago to not just take off because things got hard when there was a crisis in our leadership. And there were times when I felt like if I could just walk away from this, like everything would be better. But the beautiful thing about it is that after going through the hard parts of it, I'm more blessed to be in your midst now than I ever felt before that. I look around the room and I'm so grateful to see that in spite of my shortcomings and my weaknesses, the truth is that God really wants there to be a Denver Presbyterian church. And now, when it's time to show up big, I don't have to think twice about it. But it does hurt. And that's the kind of ideal worshiper God wants us to be. And he wants us to want that. He wants us to be the kind of people who can and indeed do swear to our own hurt. Knowing that whatever we're suffering, like Paul said in Romans 8, it's not worth comparing to the glory, the beauty of his grace showing up in our life. And then we see in verse 5, we start to see how the righteous seek justice for others. Verse 5, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent, he who does these things shall never be moved. So that first part of verse 5, we read that, who does not put out his money at interest. This is not necessarily a prohibition on lending money or borrowing money. God knows how the world operates. And sometimes to get a job done, you don't have the resources on hand. And so you borrow money to do it. And it's appropriate for people to lend money, money to you and for you, for you to pay them for the kindness of borrowing their money and making a return on that. So, Rob, you're safe working at the bank. It's good. <laughs> it's a credit union. Even better. So it's not a prohibition on money lending. Not so much. When this is called out, putting out his money at interest, 
it's going to remind those who were hearing it the first time, and it's going to now remind us that the Torah, the law, had a lot of regulations about loans that neighbors would make with one another to help one another out. So what should be in mind here is when the farmer whose crop fails goes to his neighbor and says, can you spot me so I can buy seed for next year's crop? That's an instance where they're not supposed to charge interest. This was the kind of helping that was expected in this covenant community. It was a recognition that we all need help in the chaos of life and that all that we have and own, in many ways, we are borrowing from the Lord who created it and gave it to us in the first place. To charge interest on that kind of help would be like the predatory practice of a payday loan operation. See, the righteous don't exploit those who are in hardship. They lend a hand or give it to them without thought of return. So when we see in the next little part, does not take a bribe against the innocent, it makes more sense, right? Because we know we shouldn't do that. We shouldn't get paid off to make somebody else guilty of something they didn't do. I mean, this is the kind of scumbag moves against those in hardship that are unthinkable for those who are righteous, who are following the ways of God. That isn't the way God does with us. Therefore, we shouldn't be that way with others. And in this way, it's going to reveal to us a longing to seek justice. And when I say this, justice gets thrown around in a lot of ways in culture right now, sometimes in very helpful ways, but sometimes in ways that it, it just boggles the mind. But what we're talking about here is a fair deal for those around us. We're seeking for those around us to have a fair deal and to have help when they need it. It honors their dignity in the hardship of the chaos that intrudes in all of our lives. It's the golden rule for doing unto others as we would have them do unto us. So that's that third aspect of what do these righteous do? And then we see this last little line, he who does these things shall never be moved. To be moved was to be unsettled and undone by our circumstances. It's to have the catastrophe land on our life and for us to live from that point on as if none of what we were living according to was true. It's so concise that in the middle of chaos in the world, the righteous will never be moved. It's assurance. It's comfort. It's a reminder that when we are worshiping the Lord, when we are living, in a life, living our lives in such a way that the focus is on Him, honoring His ways, that there's a ballast of contentment in being in the presence of the Lord that helps us to weather all that may come. So this psalm is setting a huge, high ideal for us. But it's not alone in that. 
As we've mentioned before, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount set a very high ideal for us. He said in chapter 5, starting in verse 13, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is Jesus giving us the ethics of the kingdom of God. How do we become salt and light? We let go of our sin. We let go of those habits and hang-ups that have held us back. And we trust Jesus. We give ourselves to him. And he, in return, pours all of his goodness into us. And in pouring all of his goodness into us, we are then able to live out from that wealth of Jesus' riches and glory. We're able to live in such a beautiful way that others see and are drawn to him. And that is that ideal of worship that we can experience together, that we can be a part of. May this be the hope that we're fixed on. May this be the aspiration we have, just as this psalm is encouraging, that we will be those ideal worshipers of God, not because we've earned it on our own, but because we are just receiving the gift that Jesus gives to us and then cycling it back in a gift of a life that honors him and a gift of a life that speaks kindly to those around us, that lives fairly with those around us, that pictures the shalom and the blessing of the God who created us. I want this ideal to be who I am, and I invite us all to make it our aspiration to be this kind of ideal worshiper of the Lord. Amen?